This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. We focus on this podcast for the most part on conversational interfaces in which uh, you know, a computer service or some sort of software poses as a human. And there's some sort of exchange of conversational information between a human and a bot, or maybe between several humans and each other and a bot. But the, the model of conversation as a, a way to interact with computers has created some really interesting possibilities when you combine it with connected devices, sometimes called the Internet of Things. And my guest today has a really terrific vision of how connected devices and the Internet of Things might be organized that's fundamentally a vision about conversation and that uh, lines up really nicely with the way that many of us who uh, speak on this podcast and listen to the podcast see the world moving. So my guest is Tom Coates. He's the co-founder of Thinkton. Welcome, Tom. Good to have you on. Nice to be here. So uh, Thinkton, as I understand it, and I'll ask you to, <laughs> to, to confirm or contradict this, is a, is a control service layer for connected devices that's fundamentally conversational. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, what we're trying to do with Thington is build a new service layer around these connected devices that you know that are in everyone's home, becoming more popular every day, also in the wider environment. And we're trying to make them communicate in one place, what we call our sort of Thington Commons. We're trying to get them to communicate in human understandable ways and also in machine understandable ways. So again, in a sort of conversational interface where they talk about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to make the experience of using them uh, easier for normal people by giving them a sort of butler or concierge or, you know, cowboy almost to organize all these devices and things and bring them together to help your life and help your home. Hmm. And, and, and there is a conversational aspect uh, to this in a couple of ways. Uh, in one sense, the, the Thington app uh, is essentially a, a conversational interface. It's familiar to, to many people who have thought about conversational interfaces. There's a, you know, an agent who's speaking to you in text bubbles, and you can you know, pre-select replies, you can write back. But there's also a fundamental sort of conversational architecture to the way that you imagine devices talking to each other. Could you, could you explain sort of that? Yeah, I mean, this is... Um... A particularly interesting bundle of stuff. Uh, when we started thinking about this project and the, about the area of the Internet of Things, we kept coming up against sort of the same old problems. Really, there were there were the obvious ones: devices don't talk to each other in any sensible, understandable way. That people really struggle to join together the devices that they have in their home and get the most out of them, and that they need help doing those kinds of things. And we, the more we kept thinking about it, the more we started thinking that some of the technical approaches people had been taking in this area were kind of wrong. Um, the technical approaches tend to be, let's create an API layer mm -hmm. that, that creates interoperability between devices. Uh, and then these devices can, in some way, work with each other. But what happens is that the actual mechanics of how they work with each other, allowing a user to kind of hook different things and connect them together, requires some kind of UI surface requires some kind of user experience. Um, and so we started thinking, maybe they're doing this wrong. Maybe they're thinking at the level of protocol, and they should be thinking in the level of, of app or website or service, um, which translates all these disparate languages into one common language. Mm -hmm. And the more we started thinking about that, the more we sort of came around to this metaphor of social networks, that in effect, human beings are pretty interoperable already. I don't want to get into too much detail on that one, but you know we can talk to each other and there are various other ways in which we can interact with each other. Uh, but we don't have a natural affordance to be on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so these, device, these software companies like Twitter and Facebook created these, these commons, these spaces where we can all go and engage with one another mm -hmm. and chat and converse. And we started thinking, well, maybe that's quite a nice metaphor for, for the world of the Internet of Things that um, potentially a traffic sensor could join that commons and start talking about what it was doing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, an air a purity sensor, a pollution sensor, could pop up in the same commons and start talking about what it was doing. And then maybe in someone's home, the, um, 
air purifier that you have can start listening to what the pollution sensor is saying and turn itself on or off automatically when the pollution level rises above a certain level. Mm -hmm. And we kept coming back to this idea that it mattered that human beings understood what these devices were doing, but also that these devices could in some way you know, chat to each other in quite a, a visceral, real form. Mm -hmm. And so this, this, this is what led us to Thington. Effectively, you can sort of imagine it like a Twitter for devices. The devices pop up, report their status, tell you what they're doing in human language and in machine-readable language. And then um, you can set and ascribe rules and reactions so that any device you add into that space can either talk and tell you what it's doing, or can listen to another device and react when something changes. So this is a little different from uh, the way that a lot of connected home devices have uh, fit into the ecosystem up until now. Often you would have something like you know a, a Nest app or a Philips Hue app that has some number of pre-baked integrations with other services, right, right. or with, with web services. In your model, all the information pertaining to the house kind of flows into the central commons, and then it's up to the, the air purifier, say, to, to determine which of the information in the commons is germane to its functioning. And then it, it listens to that and, and, and sort of uh, composes its functioning on an individual basis? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think one of the big moves we made is to say, again, a bit like Facebook and Twitter, let's not have like um, little groups where people can just talk to you know their close friends who live nearby, but let's put everything in the same you know global system Mm -hmm. and then say certain devices can only be controlled by or heard by or listened to certain people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your home is private. All the devices in your home are only visible to the people who live with you. Um, and they talk about what they can do. They can only be controlled by people who who live, the, live in that place. Mm -hmm. But as you say, they might want to make that react to um, traffic data or um, pollution data or the tides or sunrise or any number of other bits of public information out in the wider world. There are whole ranges of ways in which, you know, your home is part of a wider ecosystem, it's part of a wider environment. And, you know, by saying all these devices operate in that space, you can hook, in principle, any devices to any other in, mm -hmm. and make them react to one another. So that the first thing was, let's make one, one great big ecosystem. And then again, just like with your social network, you only see the things and the people that are interesting or relevant to you. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one is to say, we don't want to be a barrier on new devices being added into this space. So um, mm -hmm. the aspiration that we have is that if you create a new device, you hook it up to Thington, it publishes what it can do to mm -hmm. Thington. It, uh, little updates come up inside Thington from those devices saying what's going on at any given moment. And uh, it registers what commands it can take from Thington too, mm -hmm. and then we handle all of this connectivity in the middle. Similarly, if you have, if you're the Empire State Building and you want to publish what color your lights are that day, or if you are um, checking the water quality in a river or the the depth of the snow on a mountain, mm -hmm. you can write those and incorporate those into this sort of pan global Internet of Things Commons. And again, I, I think the for our purposes here. What we're really trying to do is say, and let's give, let's translate their sort of weird bits of data they all have into a human-readable piece of text that explains what they're doing, so that they can talk for themselves with a packet mm -hmm. of data underneath it, which says, "This is what I can do, and this is mm -hmm. what my current state is." And that's uh, something that I think sets your approach apart from uh, something that is superficially similar, which is like the Apple uh, Health Kit or Home Kit approach, right. right? Where it's a it's a common platform, but it's extremely formal. Uh, Apple yeah. has said HealthKit can accommodate beats per minute of your heart rate, your weight, you know, when you go to sleep, when you wake up, and then other applications can come along and provide things within that framework. But it, it it's not as flexible. It's not kind of a, a self-determined publishing model like what you're describing. That's right. Um, and, and we are, you know, we're, we're not quite at the point that we want to be with, with what we're making yet. We're still about two thirds of the way there. Mm -hmm. We are doing some work at the moment to make it um, very easy for people to publish data in a common format inside Thington. Mm -hmm. But we're also making it so that uh, if you have a weird device that does something completely bizarre and you want to have your and you want to publish updates to Thington, you can do so and you have your data is sort of namespaced. You know? So mm. like we will say Thington understands things like 
indoor temperature, oven temperature, mm-hmm. fridge temperature, freezer temperature, outdoor temperature, you know, uh, temper- you know, all of these kind of attributes become qualities that Thington can say at a fundamental level, I understand. And so if you're mm-hmm. a thermostat, you can publish information of those qualities. And, you know, human readable text, bot-like text will come out from that device as it communicates and explains to the people around it what it's doing and what's happening. But if you want to put in, like, you know, number of cookies you have in a jar, you know, <laughs> uh, or um, like some device could publish uh, ambient noise levels in clubs, you know, uh-huh. um, in, a, in a way that we just don't understand. You know, you could just do that in a way by, you know, you, you get a namespace for that one. You'd say, I'm publishing club volume, co- you know, you know, my nightclub. Let's give my nightclub a name. Disco mm-hmm. Volante, you know, mm-hmm. it's Flying Saucer. Um, uh, Disco Volante, colon, uh, ambient temperature equals 25 degrees centigrade. Mm-hmm. And then that would be a piece of data that was specific about nightclubs mm-hmm. that other people could use or not use uh, in whatever way they saw fit. Um, I think that, again, I think for me, the I'm going quite technical here. And I think um, I, 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 at some level, I mean, I'm fundamentally a product guy and a designer. So mm-hmm. uh, it's it's always interesting to me that I, I tend to, to navigate into quite such complex technical areas. Um, very quickly. But what we're trying to do is basically just say, wouldn't it be great if every device on the planet could talk to each other? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be great if they talked to each other in human readable language and you could see what was going on with each one of them and how they were doing and what they were reacting to? Wouldn't it be great if they could listen to each other and react in normal ways and listen to the people in their lives and react to them? And wouldn't it be great if there were an assistant there who could lead you through the process of creating relationships between those things, mm-hmm. uh, and and really that's 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 the whole arc. Uh, talk a little bit about the importance of the human readable uh, publishing by devices. Right. So this is a, there's a couple of really interesting things here. Like when we were going back to our very first earliest ideas in this space, we kept coming around to some really common problems that people have in their homes. One of them is they don't know why stuff happens. When you start creating Internet of Things devices and programming them, you find yourself in your house watching TV and then a light turns on. Mm -hmm. And then you don't know why the light turned on. It's completely incomprehensible to you why that light just flicked on. And somewhere in one of the rule systems, somewhere deep in your IoT products, mostly built with a programmer's mindset, sometimes even with code, Mm -hmm. Um, you have to find out what weird mix of stimuli happened that turned that light on to turn on at that moment. I had a light in my office that would turn off every day at 5 p.m. And I genuinely, I spent weeks trying to work out what was going on there. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, it would happen. I would spend an hour looking around, trying to figure out what the hell caused it. I couldn't figure it out, so I'd forget about it. Two days later, it would do the same thing. I, it was driving me crazy. So a mm-hmm. lot of this was about having the devices explain themselves. You know, I am doing this thing now because you arrived home. Mm-hmm. Um, I am doing this thing now because the sun went down. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to give people an understanding of the hooks and the current state of their environments and their lives. So, you know, can I glance at my device and get a sense of if, if anything is going wrong right now? Mm-hmm. Can I get a sense and see the most recent updates from the cameras in my home? in the same place that I might see that the the oven turned on or the heater turned on? And do those messages also suggest to me new things I might want to do? Like, mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. it say, you know, the temperature is now at a very high level in here and you go, okay, well, I'd like to create a rule that says when the temperature reaches a high level, turn on the fans, turn on the air conditioning. And so each one of these updates that expresses what happens becomes a little opportunity to start creating a new relationship. Next time hmm. this happens, do something else. Next time this happens, change the state of this other thing. And so, so that was basically the idea. I, another, I mean, going all the way back to the beginning of the product, like the reason it's called Thinkton is really because, you know, we, we'd been bashing around all these kind of really fun ideas about how to make homes, smart homes of the future, comprehensible, clear, um, mm. and easy to play with and build. And Matt, at one point, my fat guy, co-founder Matt, said, um, in a way, what we're creating is like a valet or a butler. Hmm. We're creating someone who, 200 years ago, you get to live in this incredibly opulent house if you were very lucky. Mm-hmm. And your valet or butler would talk to your, the, the, the lord or lady of the house mm-hmm. and ask them what they wanted to be done. 
and then they would go away and communicate to all the you know impoverished drudges who were like locked up in the basement you know on minimum wage or Mm -hmm. often much below that you know today the equivalent of these people are washing machines dishwashers ovens Mm -hmm. they're the appliances we have in our homes and as they start having more agency as they start being able to be programmed and controlled, it turns out we don't have this butler role. We don't have this, this person hmm. you can talk to who will figure out what you need, suggest stuff that you might like, go and mm-hmm. organize this stuff and make it all work. So it's the, it's the diplomatic core between the upstairs and sort of the automated downstairs. Yeah. I mean, again, like we're all, I think, incredibly happy that we no longer live in a situation where there is human beings upstairs and downstairs in the mm-hmm. kind of way they were was 100 years ago and that sort of more egalitarian world that we've got has also meant that most of us many of us have attributes you know or access to some of the the things that would have been incredibly hard to do you know mm-hmm. a few hundred years ago we can you know rapidly chop up food we can rapidly heat a home we can you know we don't have to draw have someone to draw a bath everyone gets mm-hmm. to have a bath now everyone mm-hmm. gets to have hot water I mean, almost everyone, obviously. But there is now this different question, which is there's still this overhead. These devices can do more and more every day, but getting them to do the best things in the most efficient way to make your life as good and as nice as possible with the least actual financial expenditure, the least effort, mm-hmm. the least programming um, is becomes a more interesting space. Your point about the value of um, human-readable output sort of points to uh, interpretability, which is one of my causes that I, uh, that I talk about a lot, especially as we uh, think about, you know, deep learning and, and neural networks where, uh, and, and other kinds of artificial intelligence where uh, the, the methodology, the thought process by which a system might have come to some conclusion is often not at all transparent and is right. possibly not even interpretable by a human at all. As you point out, even a straightforward traditional controls system uh, might also be very difficult to interpret. You know, if your if your light is coming on because uh, you created an if this then that rule four years right. ago that had to do with the location of an iPad that you have since lost, and you know it it yeah, uh, exactly it's screwing everything up. But you made another point, which is subtle and I think really interesting that by revealing some of the thought process that goes into uh, the action of a smart device, you're actually revealing to the user some of the affordances of the system and possibly making it possible for the user to, to do something creative with it. By showing the recipe, you're demonstrating some of the stuff that the system can do and, and possibly opening up an inspiration. Yeah, and I think this is... Um... This is a sort of there's a long long piece of standing work in design or design thinking about this and you know one thing people talk about at great length as a desirable thing is seamlessness in design you know mm-hmm. you want a seamless experience in which everything just flows into each other and is completely perfect and works all the time and the the sort of counterpoint to that that a lot of people in the design communities have been talking about over the last 10 15 years or so is this sort of other idea which is slightly clumsily called seamfulness, hmm. which effectively is that you understand the edges of things. You understand that you communicate in some way to the user. This is where one system ends, one system begins. This is roughly what is transferred before them in a metaphoric sense, but, in, but, but with the edges just clearly enough delineated that, you under, that the user can get a grasp of what's actually happening behind the scenes mm-hmm. and can start tracing back its, as you say, affordances, places where it might go wrong when something isn't right you know what part of the thing it feels like it should that that problem is in and you can go back and fix it again i've talked a lot about this from a sort of technical capacity about about the aspirations of this sort of large system but really what we actually want to do is say to people your homes can be sharper your homes can be safer your homes can be more secure your homes can be more fuel efficient they can be more fun Here's this enormous amount of power that we can give you to make your your home work for you in lots of interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we help you do that? How do we recommend to you what to buy? How do we recommend to you some things you might like to do to make your home work better? Mm-hmm. How do we help you set those things up in a clear and effective way? And how do we communicate to you at all times in a non-overwhelming, non-intrusive way what is happening right now, why it is happening, and all that kind of stuff? So one of the things we determined in this space was that 
there was huge power you could give people. You genuinely could make people's lives better. It, in sometimes in very small ways, sometimes in very large ways. You could make it so that the dishwasher turned on when they walked out the door, so that it didn't disturb them when they were watching TV. But you could also tell them if there was uh, a stranger in their house that they hadn't expected mm-hmm. to be there at any given time and let them know wherever they were in the world. You know, there were these actual, tangible, valuable things that you can do for people's lives to make their homes and their lives more secure and more fun, more fuel efficient and safer. What you've described for the most part so far in Thington is that it's a messaging commons where a lot of individual devices that might have some kind of limited intelligence can right. um, listen for the right information and, and do the right thing as it's determined individually for each of them. How, how much do you think the platform itself or the commons, Thington, needs to contain the, um, you know, the agent or the intelligence in itself? Or do you anticipate that people outside developers will come in and create the kinds of smart agents that you're describing? That's a really interesting question. And I, and I think the other side of that question is, is almost how, you know, does Thington itself have to be constrained within its own ecosystem? And can mm-hmm. it extend into other people's spaces or platforms? You know, it's sort of a two-way thing there. Like, are we creating an ecosystem for other people's bots? And uh, can we introduce our bots and our experiences into other environments? Mm-hmm. I think they're sort of two parts of the same coin. Uh, there are a lot of hyperparameters that you could imagine people um, implicitly selecting by choosing different bots, right? Some people might want to save energy at all costs to convenience. Other people might want to have, you know, all of their things run at the most convenient time, regardless of energy usage. If you, you could imagine different sort of agent schemes prioritizing different things in that kind of respect. I mean, honestly, for me, this is the part where I sort of think about the product in two very distinct parts mm-hmm. i think about this this technical ecosystem we're creating in which all devices can talk to all devices and i think about this very customer focused experience where we are trying to make it so that a normal person in their home can get magical powers from smart devices that that make their lives substantially better mm-hmm. without having to be in any way technically savvy and those two things you know like they they occasionally most of the time they they help each other and support each other occasionally they feel like they they slightly operate against each other and we have to sort of hide the complexity of one half to build the power of the other half or or mm. vice versa now we we build our concierge uh, that's the the conversational chatty bot that talks to you in a series of like iMessage or SMS style conversations right um we build that to look out for opportunities for certain pre-existing rules that we've assembled so far. Hmm. How that might work for a normal person. If you have uh, a light in your house, just one light bulb, we can start going, would you like that light bulb to be turned on when you get home? Mm -hmm. Would you like it to be turned off when you go out? When everyone is out, would you like it to cycle on and off to make it look like there are people at home? When, When we notice, if they get a motion detector, we can say, if there's motion in the house, would you like me to turn the lights on straight away when everyone mm-hmm. who lives there is out? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and each new device like opens up like a tech tree in civilization, um, <laughs> new opportunities you could do. So we say, we set up a series of scripts behind the scenes and we say, when these metrics, when this user has these devices, um, suggest these rules to them and it will just pop up and ask the user if that would be an interesting thing for them. And it's all very conversational and chatty and easy. Mm-hmm. And as I said, then those those rules, those criteria are registered with the rules engine. Now, there is no reason at all down the line why we shouldn't allow someone to come in and, again, look out for certain criteria either in the data of your home or in the devices you own or in your behavior in some way mm-hmm. and then leap up and, and and suggest a new thing it could do for you and then register that again with the central rules engines so that it became an ongoing action that happened. Uh, by the way, behind the curtain, uh, are devices actually publishing their updates in natural language, or is there simultaneously a structured uh, component to each of these updates? A device can publish to Thington with what we call our core vocabulary, mm-hmm. um, which we're trying to build out, as I said earlier, a set of types of data that accurately describe let's say 50 percent of all of the most likely operations 
uh, that people are going to want to do. So, mm-hmm. uh, and we and again, this is a, a technical audience, so I'll just talk a bit about you know. Sure. So these are things like light affordances for light bulbs, thermostats. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So effectively, you know, we use um, RDF style triple tags. You know, basically mm-hmm. machine tags in the, the way that Flickr used to use them. It's a um, we were sort of partly inspired by some of the stuff that HomeKit's been doing mm-hmm. uh, in this space as well. And we effectively say there is a namespace, an attribute, and a value. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, a device could publish to Thington and it would have things like the Thington main data, data namespace is called core. Mm-hmm. And so it would be core colon uh, ambient indoor temperature equals 25 degrees or core colon device manufacturer equals um philips mm-hmm. um and so so in that sense they can publish if they if they want to use our pre-existing vocabulary they can just do so okay uh that comes in as json and then those blobs are fired around uh in a real-time messaging style a bit like twitter does it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. uh and the real-time rules engine looks out for data attributes of certain kinds and triggers things when things happen the other side of it is that um, again, secondly, there's the namespace stuff. So again, Nest has a whole bunch of weird things in their API mm-hmm. um, can, that are specific to to Nest. So they have like the leaf show a leaf right. on the thermostat, and we affect you know. And so they have an, an API quality in their one, which is basically has leaf equals mm-hmm. yes or no. <laughs> now that's there's not nothing there that any central broker would ever want to deal with, right? Or or standardize around. So we just say. Their their namespace on that one for any attributes they want to add in is nest colon hasleaf equals yes. Right. Again, people can register rules against that, and if some if the nest state, the leaf changes, we can trigger responses on it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't need to be part of the canonical language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the, the the idea there is, you know, why would you get in the way of people adding different types of data into your system? Mm-hmm. You don't want to. You want as many types of data in the system as you can. As standards emerge, as commonalities appear, we can graduate those to the core vocabulary, and that means that more we can start creating more specific rules, more specific functionality that really support common types of data. Mm-hmm. Now, when that data flows through the place, we also have um, we have a effectively a short script templating engine, and these tend to be assembled, I, I believe, on the client uh, right mm. at the end, mm-hmm. um, whatever that client is. The, 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 the data is the core bit, and then if if the data meets certain attributes, the human readable text is assembled on the fly at the point where people consume it. Hmm. So when they so they see it all in in human readable natural language. And they see at the bottom of every update a, a list of the data types that are inside it that you might want to build a rule against, mm-hmm. but it's assembled on the fly. Now, the reason it's done in that way is obviously for things like internationalization down the line. Right. Right? The data remains constant, but you will want to have different scripts for Italian or French or Dutch or Swedish. Mm-hmm. This idea of, um, of sort of uh, translation and what the canonical language is, is is interesting. And I've been trying to think of some sort of parallel to the idea of um, interlingua that Google started talking about um, last year as it rolled out the new deep learning-based uh, Translate uh, right. application. What uh, Google Translate does now in translating between many languages is rather than having a mapping from, say, English to Spanish, it has a mapping from English to what they call interlingua, which is a, oh, a non-human comprehensible uh, kind of generalist uh, language. And then, um, and then you map from interlingua to Spanish. So in this way, it, it you know you don't need a mapping from Swedish to Mongolian. You just need right. mappings from each to interlingua, and it, and it vastly simplifies um, the whole thing. But on the uh, so so something like that is is really cool. Um, but if you structure the interlingua step, the the kind of uh, translation um, uh, kernel too much, then you wind up with something like. Uh, HomeKit or HealthKit that we were describing earlier, where it's exceedingly right. difficult to come up with something really creative and add it in and see how the rest of the ecosystem responds to it. Yeah, I think this has been a, um, a long-standing question for us is, I mean, it turns out, like, this is going to seem incredibly obvious, but it turns out to be a, an oddly complicated thing. Like, almost every API you talk to, many of them will have, uh, for a physical device, many of them will have a uh, attributes for firmware version, software mm-hmm. version, hardware version. Obviously, some devices have 
two of those and not the other one. You know, sometimes one of them means hardware, one of them means firmware. There's a lot of discrepancies between these various APIs, for, just for a start. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then you get the second order group of things. And this is really on my, in my mind at the moment because I'm I'm working on more of the, the canonical vocabulary at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like the least interesting. I mean, you know, I'm a classicist <laughs> by training. You know, I grew up, I went to university, did ancient Greek. So in a oh, weird cool. way, there's some some philological qualities to this that make me feel like a sort of pioneer of a, you know, like deciphering linear B. But it's really right, not right. my, um, it's not really my <laughs> core area of expertise. So it's a bit frustrating. But um uh, but you know, also you get things like temperature. You know, many uh-huh. many things will say I have a temperature. Um, but you know, for us, that's no good. You know, we need if we want to make canonical rules that say make your home warmer when mm-hmm. you get home, we don't want to turn the oven on just because it has a temperature attribute. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to say that the fridge should be aspiring to be twenty five degrees centigrade or seventy degrees Fahrenheit. That's not not mm-hmm. a useful thing to do. We have to, you know, so we we have both these sort of understandings of devices, but also these very specific and quite um, you know quite detailed bits of um, of semantic work going on. You know, mm-hmm. so so inevitably you have to have a place for extendable and adding extensible data types in there. So do you think that uh, that this type of uh, agent will always need some amount of hard-coded prior intuitive understanding of the of the physical world or or do you see a future in which you know the the agent is able to learn by comparing human intentions and human actions that when you say make the house warmer you're referring to this temperature setting and not the oven or the water heater temperature setting That's an incredibly hard question <laughs> um, <laughs> Predict thanks. the future of intelligent um, computing Tom it seems to me that a thermostat that thinks it's uh, 70 Fahrenheit that shares a house with another thermostat that reports a different value for the temperature, mm-hmm. maybe it's off by three or four degrees, mm-hmm. like that's something we can start spotting and intuiting and trying to work out, is this a function of the environment? Mm-hmm. Or is this a function that one of those things is off a bit and is getting, giving you the wrong temperature? Mm-hmm. Can we start compensating for that um, intuitively, algorithmically, through through agents reacting and responding to one another that seems like there seems to be much more stuff we can do in, in sort of machine learning around and similarly about machine learning around how people use their homes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um i mean one thing we've been very interested in is indoor positioning mm-hmm. uh, as someone moves through their home with different devices in there can we tell which devices tend to be turned on at the same time can we tell that a motion sensor in one room triggers, you know, combi- is often associated with the things, the lights coming on in one place. Interesting. Can we start assembling not a geographical view of the home, but like a, a graph-based view of the home that mm-hmm. says these things are closer to each other and connected mm-hmm. than these things are, and 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 use that to start like having a a bit of higher order intelligence about um, how people are using their homes what kinds of things they might like. So you've described a, a vision for uh, ThinkTin in which it's kind of the central intelligence kernel for, for all of the connected devices in, in home. And that seems like a very attractive place to be commercially. Uh, have you detected any reluctance on the part of the, um, the connected home you know, vendors, the, the, the device manufacturers, to becoming uh, sort of clients of someone else's intelligent platform? Um, there's a, I think there's a couple of things I would say here. I mean, at, at some basic level, we don't, again, we don't want to be, it's very important for us that we're not just the mechanism for the home. You know, like mm-hmm. if you come to my house, you're on my guest list for my home. When you arrive in my house, the controls will appear for you. This is mm-hmm. another thing that we've been working on based on this idea that the entire space is, you know, the world is one space and that you should be able to be permissioned easily based on your location and your relationships and your friendships mm-hmm. um, uh, to, to use devices wherever they are. So like again, we want to be an open platform that creates no hardware of our own, uh, much like Twitter is not a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a space where people talk and say any, any manufacturer who wants to participate in this space, any public data source that wants to work in this space can. There are, I think, two things that have happened in the in the in this part of the industry recently. I think a lot of the manufacturers no longer believe they can own the whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. We've found a lot of interest from manufacturers in engaging with 
other platforms that can make them interoperable. It means they don't have to go and build those interoperable connections themselves. Right. Having said that, there is this other thing that's going on, mm -hmm. which is uh, there are there's a lot more movement in the very large companies about owning ecosystems. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I don't believe that you know ring doorbells um, and um, Wemo light switches uh, believe at this point that they can be the the software running layer for the entire world. Right. But I do think that that Apple and Google uh, and Amazon are starting to think they could be, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and and that's obviously a really big challenge for a small company like us. And I think the way we are broaching that is by we're non-exclusive and um, uh, we're optimizing for openness. There's a lot about your architecture that reminds me of the the sort of fundamental uh, internet mantra: you know, small pieces loosely joined, and uh, it's, it seems like it's part of the commercial strategy as well. Uh, 10 years ago, the way, well, 15 years ago, the way you would talk on the internet would be through blogs mm -hmm. or home site, home page, home pages of various kinds. And you chat across those things, or you would use like a chat mechanism. Mm -hmm. And then Facebook and Twitter basically came along and they said, look, if you chat and communicate and publish inside our platforms, then we become a financially viable institution mm -hmm. and we can reinvest the money that comes from this work to make a better and more powerful and stronger platform. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've learned from this is that what the what the environment, what the community has learned from this a bit is that some products just work better at, in a centralized fashion with one company mm -hmm. with, a, with with an idea with with a company in the middle that is there to try and facilitate other spaces, other engagements, other relationships. Right. That takes on and the product that, management and invests yeah. in the development of the of the platform. Yeah, and I think I think we we digging into this at, de at length thought, you know, wouldn't again, wouldn't it be great if these devices all just had an API and could talk to each other in effective ways? Um, and then you start going, well, then they'd still need a decent piece of software for a user to use to bring all those devices together and make sense of it all. And really, there's no that has to be a, its own company, mm -hmm. and there's no impetus for them to for any of those individual companies to build that platform. And if they did, none of their competitors would want to be compatible with it anymore. Hmm. Uh, you know, so uh, there's a sort of like that that the the decentralized model in that one almost falls apart. Right, you know, it, right. It, it, it creates a space where these individual organizations actively fight against one another. So, like, you know, it's it's been a bit of a culture shock, you know. I think, like, for for those of us who, again, grew up with, you know, just always understood the internet to be a a, a, a platform that was designed for letting little people talk, <laughs> and uh, you know, everyone gets a voice, everyone gets a platform. Things should be decentralized, disaggregated, collaborative. Mm -hmm. I think the last five to ten years have really um, shook that that idealism a lot. Hmm. You know, I would say now, like, actually almost the opposite. And this is me going philosophical. Like, I, I think that what we've learned over the last 10 to 15 years is that actually the internet creates perfect competition. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that perfect competition results in, you know, a very large player in every major area that has 50% of the market. Right. And then, you know, a second player, which has 20% of the market. And this is true in search and it's true in auctions and it's true in social and it's true in mapping and mm -hmm. you know like uh, uh it it sort of it it seems to be an unfortunate aspect of the world right so what we're trying to do is sort of you know we, we're trying to merge these a bit we're saying there needs to be a company that that can actually create a space for these devices to talk to each other and can build that unifying experience and we're going to try everything we can to make it as open and fluid and creative as we can great so this is kind of um platform economics in a nutshell um so I, I want to go back a little bit to the product. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that Thington is conversational in a couple of ways, one of which which we've discussed uh, here is the the architecture, the the fundamental idea that you know different devices are sort of having conversations with each other. Now there is also a conversational agent in the app that yeah. uh, that talks to you. it's It's very different from a lot of connected device IOT um, 
agents that you might have in apps, which are really like a dashboard or a control panel for a bunch of things that are connected to them. This is a conversational interface. Why did you go for the conversational interface to control these connected devices? Yeah, this is um, very interesting. And it wasn't our original idea. I mean, when we started the product, we we had this idea that we would insert these sort of simple yes, no questions into the main flow of the app. Um, uh, and that, that we would use that to gradually tailor your experience and improve the way your home worked. And we kept coming up against these really quite complex scenarios in people's homes. You know, there's a, a few like anecdotal fun fun ways of thinking about this. Like, mm-hmm. like one of them is that people think these things are very intuitive and very simple to understand. You know, they go like one, we had a conversation with a Google engineer who said, look, I don't understand all these processes. They all seem so complicated. All I want is something that turns a light on when it notices movement in my bedroom. <laughs> and we were like, now, do you really want that? Right. You know, right. Our first thing. Because like, the, the bit that you and I intuit from that is straight away that what, what they actually want is as they walk up to bed in the evening, the mm-hmm. lights should turn on right. until they've got into bed and they've decided to turn the lights off. And then when the lights are off, they don't really want them to turn on again until the following morning. Right. Um, but that's actually, if you disaggregate that into what they actually wanted, mm-hmm. as, I, as I just did, it's so much more complicated that when I walk into a room, I want the lights to turn on. Or, right. or more specifically, when I notice motion in my bedroom, I want the lights to turn on. Because we know, that we know. I mean, for obvious, obvious, don't have to go into them reasons. Mm-hmm. It's obvious that if a motion sensor in your bedroom notice movement, the lights should not just turn on. Right. You know, A, it could be the middle of the day. B, mm-hmm. someone else could be asleep in that room. Mm-hmm. C... You could turn over in bed in the middle of the night and all the lights would come on. Mm-hmm. D, there may be other activities going on in your bedroom <laughs> at night um, uh, that you might not want the lights on full for. I mean, it, it's so obvious. And I, I, know, I know I got a bit lurid there for a moment, but it's so obvious that that, that, that simple if this, then that style rule does mm-hmm. not work. Right, right. Uh, and, and the more we dug into this, the more we found that this was true of pretty much every circumstance, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, when I get home, turn some lights on, is actually, again, when I am the first person home mm-hmm. and I walk into the house and it's dark outside, then turn on some lights. Mm-hmm. And I want these lights to be in this state. Right. Similarly, you've written about how the Nest, which has the Nest thermostat, which has uh, kind of a learning function and in theory is able to figure out when you're going to be home and how you like the temperature when you're home, actually winds up being a little annoying unless you yeah. happen to be an extraordinarily regular person. Yeah, our experience, we've talked to, we know that the Nest thermostat makes people's experiences uh, 90% right all the time, uh, and that's much, much better than most traditional thermostats would, would do. But we've also talked to everyone who has a Nest thermostat, and they have said, with almost without exception, we've talked to about 30 people, and they and the the, the largest comment was, I had to turn off the learning algorithms after a while mm-hmm. because I would just be at home and the, the, it would all turn off and I wouldn't realize. Or it would be baking hot and I wouldn't know why it was baking hot. And mm-hmm. then I would think my wife had put on the the, the nest. Actually, it had just turned itself on. Mm-hmm. And that, that 10% where it gets things wrong is just sort of profoundly irritating. Right, right. The whole part of this really is making rule systems is super complicated. Like actually saying, you know, when these four criteria are met, then do these five things. Mm-hmm. It's programming. It's beyond most people's skill sets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas that other model, learn about me and just react and do things you think are right, seems to have enough errors in it, enough anomalies in it, to create that kind of spooky experience I talked about at the beginning of devices acting without your knowledge. Right, you know, without any apparent you reason. You don't understand why. Mm-hmm. We, and the angle we came to was effectively a really British one <laughs> that we, you know, we would just try and be super polite and see what happened. You know? uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and and the, the model we came up with was we would look out for opportunities um, for you and then we would ask you if you wanted them. Mm-hmm. And we would ask you if we wanted them while leading you through all the kinds of steps you might need to do to get the experience you wanted. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, we... we, we started exploring we, we the project was called chatty concierge mm-hmm. um and we did uh, a sort of one week sprint does this make any sense at the end of that one week sprint we were like this actually 
seems to solve a hell of a lot of problems for us, mm-hmm. but it can't be that easy. You know, like it's got to be harder <laughs> and more fiddly than we thought. And then we went back and uh, did a two week sprint to see if we could build something that would roughly work and determined we could and that it was actually, it felt really nice and really huh. interesting. Uh, and then we did a two month piece of work to get the first version of the product together. We decided that um, that effectively what we wanted to do was make the experiences pleasurable and simple and clear and be able to optimize for the simple writing of these conversational scripts um, and the simple offering to people of things that they might actually want mm-hmm. um, uh, in quite simple, structured ways. And so... It's it's been quite an interesting process, and sort of the way we're thinking about it a lot is: what if there were, what if we wrote these very easy to write scripts? What if we wrote a thousand of them mm-hmm. or five thousand of them, uh, and then we looked out for the right opportunity to trigger certain scripts, mm-hmm. or we gave people the ability to um, to look for certain problems, mm-hmm. and we primed it and led them towards it. So it, it's hmm. it's become a lot more of a, a sort of interesting content management and content strategy question i think than a technical one right like how do you write clear and understandable human friendly not too long not too involved uh scripts that lead people through a problem to a resolution um in a really easy to understand way right right so you're separating out the functionality of the of the system from the ways that users might invoke the functionality and then you can kind of make the functions available in different ways as the as the ability of the system to speak with humans in natural language evolves. Yeah, and I think this is uh, this has been a really interesting ele- element for us. It's like we sort of talk a bit. Of, uh, I mean, I, I'm a bad example of this, but um, you know, many people have someone in their family who's a sort of technical expert or is more co- more computationally savvy, and when they have to set something up, they talk to them. So, so there is something interesting there about like. That that sense that there is that you are engaging in a conversation inherently and immediately makes the thing less intimidating. And if you can prime it in the right way so that the right conversations come up at the right times, that helps as well. Yeah, and there mm-hmm. are risks and consequences as well in this. You know, you you really can't go very long before people start getting irritated. If you expect the same preamble every time to happen for a user to do a very simple activity. You know, if they have to go through like a 20-step conversation with a bot mm-hmm. to get to a point where they can do a very simple mecha- you know, mechanical thing, people are going to get frustrated and irritated as if they were, you know, dealing with a call center that was, you know, frustrating and right, right. had a script that they were demanding they went through. Again, it's been a very different approach, I think, we've taken from some other people. Again, human readability, ease, ease of writing, mm-hmm as a sort of UI function to lead people through complex complex circumstances and situations in a way that's designed to make it simple and easy to understand. It feels like that's been a, a slightly different take from some of the, the more technically hardcore <laughs> approaches some people have taken, which right. actually I, I, I wonder for many of these situations if they're actually necessary. Well, I think they appeal to the engineers who develop them in a lot of cases. Right. I think, that's, I, I think about something like, like, like Slack and I think... I think how easy, how nice it would be to to be able to, as a non-engineer, write a quip script uh, and then like insert in a couple of like trigger points, you know, mm-hmm. or like this should do an action if they if people reach certain things, you know, almost like we used to write templates for like movable type or or like any kind of templating language mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. Like I would love to be able to rapidly assemble a bot for Slack that I could summon with a word the name of the bot. It could ask me a series of very simple questions, you know, like literally, what do you want for lunch? Mm-hmm. Oh, Indian. Okay, cool. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, um, uh, would you like it from Nan- from this place or this place or this place? This place. Uh-huh. When would you like it delivered? Displaying, you know, times near near your current time. Right. time. How many people for? Three. Is that everything? No. Yes. Done. And then mm-hmm. it just does it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like optimizing for writing, mm-hmm. optimizing for the creation of scripts optimizing for very simple granular activities mm-hmm. i think is just as interesting at the moment as optimizing for natural language processing optimizing for um pseudo ais optimizing for these more complicated use cases right i think you've uh, 
you know, you've characterized your reasons for developing a conversational interface in ways that would make a lot of sense to the listeners here who have developed conversational interfaces for the kinds of Slack interactions, for instance, that you're describing. So the conversational right. interface lets you be a little bit more contextual. So it's not, you know, it's not, well, obviously you can do this with a web form, but uh, it's a little less common, you know, that you only see options that are relevant to you and relevant to the thing that you last selected. And it's able to walk you through in a way that kind of builds out a computer logic without ever making you feel as though you're participating in programming. So it, it you yeah. know, it by doing it as a conversation, which is actually how a computer, you know, might think of it. Um, but you're able to do it in a, in a, in a bit of a friendlier, more approachable way. Tom, you've, uh, laid out a, a really amazing vision here for, um, not only, you know, connected devices and conversational interfaces, but also how conversational interfaces relate to, to sort of computing in general and to the use of computers. So, um, to the listeners, I'd commend this great blog post that, uh, Tom put up almost a year ago called the shape of things that you'll find on Thington's website. I saw it back in April of last year and um, immediately saw the connection between conversational interfaces and uh, connected devices and a variety of other places where we might use uh, computing. We'll link to the blog post uh, in the show notes that accompany this episode, but it's a really cool bit of reading. Tom, if listeners want to find you online, where should they look? Uh, well, if they want to find out more about Thington, they should go to thington.com or they, that's T-H-I-N-G ton.com or to Thington HQ on Twitter if they want to hear me yap about current politics and bemoan the state of the world <laughs> uh, then they can follow me on Twitter at Tom Coates Terrific. Tom Coates, co-founder of Thington. Thank you so much for coming on Thank you for having me If you enjoy listening to the O'Reilly Bots podcast, please consider leaving us a review Visit iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever it is that you listen to the Bots podcast, and let us know what you think of it. Also, reach out on Twitter. And finally, remember to send in a proposal for the O'Reilly AI conference. That's our next conference with a lot of bot-related programming. Use the link in the show notes for this episode, or just Google O'Reilly AI conference. For the O'Reilly Bots podcast, I'm John Bruner. <laughs> <laughs>